Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, and today we are joined by two incredible guests. We're going to be talking about navigating change within the family enterprise. So Nike Anane and Sitsi Mutendi, welcome. Glad you're here with us today. Thank you, Michael. I'm really excited about our conversation. Yes, thank you so much for having us today. Of course. So when we, when we kick off the show, we ask each of our guests to tell about your journey. You know, this whole journey of getting involved in family enterprises or family firms is um, a little different for everybody. So can you tell us how you ended up in working with family businesses? Um, for me, my journey in working with family businesses is really very closely intertwined with my life journey. Um, um, my father started off our first family business the year I was born. Um, but obviously, as a baby, I wasn't exactly an employee. Um, <laughs> at age nine, um, so I'm based in Lagos, Nigeria, and our family business is based in Lagos as well. At age nine, we moved to the UK, myself, my mom, and my brothers. And dad stayed back and continued building out the business. And so I went to university in London, and I worked in accountancy for a few years. And I found myself coming back to Nigeria to kind of discover what my true passions in life was, because I really was quite lost in corporate. I was doing quite well, but I just found it quite hollow and it wasn't purposeful for me. And so I was supposed to be back in Nigeria for three months to really get a flair for what industries I really loved. And here we are 10 years later, I ended up staying and never left ended up working alongside my father in our family businesses, which are in construction, real estate and engineering, as well as setting up a family office um, to manage the family's investments. But I found the journey very lonely. There were no advisors to help us navigate the many transitions we were going through, no family business advisors on the ground in Nigeria, and there was no community of other family business owners next gens like myself that had to grapple with you know feeling like you're in the shadow of dad all the time can you ever compare can you actually take this business to the next level um will this business even make it amidst this really difficult business environment in Nigeria and so to cut a long story short I found myself in a place where I had to train myself up to become the advisor for my family to help us with navigating those transitions and I started serving other families in the process. Then Sissy and I met along that journey and I'll, I'll let her finish the story about what happened when we met after she tells her story. <laughs> Perfect, thank you so much. Sissy? 
So for me, my journey in family business advising started almost four years ago now. So I lost my dad um, three years ago, going on four. And I'm a third generation family business owner. So both my grandparents were family business owners from both sides. And my parents were family business owners. However, none of that, those family businesses transcended to become generational family businesses. With each generation, we had to start our own. So we, I would say we're more of an enterprising family or the entrepreneurship um, gene was prevalent in all of us. So when my dad passed on, it was a very hard journey for me because I was probably one of the closest of his children to him in terms of proximity and relationship. And so I was appointed the executor of his estate. And in going through his estate and trying to, as a child, to honor his legacy, as well as celebrate him and as well as ensure that all the members of the family that were entitled to his estate um, were participating and also got something that, um, that they could remain with. And that was a very difficult journey because my dad had um, seven children from four different mothers and it was quite complex for us. And um, so that means I had to bring together all my siblings and also try to honor as much as possible the good relationships he had, but also wade through the conflicts that were already there that had already been built. And so through that journey, I think I realized I'm also a family business owner and uh, I have a publishing firm that's 12 years old, a Montessori primary school that is four years old. And the, the journey itself, it's me and my husband who've been building these businesses. And my husband comes from a complex uh, family business history and just trying to think and trying to figure out what is it that we are truly building and do we see it past ourselves and into our grandchildren or are we just having that entrepreneurial mind where you're just building and building and trying to pay the bills and become successful but not really thinking far beyond your own self and probably your children at most um, which are thoughts that only come towards the end and if, you, if you're really lucky you will get an end where you are able to honor the legacy you've built as well as um, honor those custodians that you, you're handing over the legacy and prepare them for it and looking around me I realized I grew up with family businesses all around me and a lot of these businesses just didn't make it from generation to generation. Businesses I knew growing up who were dominant in the market just seems to disappear. And that's when I did my research, like went through the same journey Nikkei went through, trying to find my own feet, trying to find how I could preserve the legacy that I was building and create a legacy instead of just building a business and create a wealth-driven vehicle that's going to be able to help my grandchildren instead of just doing it for now in my lifetime. And that's when I, I stumbled on family governance as a tool. And for me, I saw family governance as a blueprint as opposed to the final product. It just gave us uh, a map towards a future that we would like to see. So as you would see it if you were a blueprint to a house, you know the type of house you want, the number of rooms you're gonna have in it and everything. And so it's just a blueprint 
the actual working of the governments to actually build the house takes tools, takes um, a team, your family, the team you surround yourself with and the whole build out itself is the process. And so as I was doing that, I started um, also getting into getting the education that I needed um, through FFI, looking at STEP, and also then really honing down on helping other family businesses that I realized wanted the same thing I wanted, but didn't know where to start. So that's how I started my consultancy. And in that journey is when I met Nike, as she said, we met via LinkedIn, we connected and there was a lot of resonance between us. And our first phone call was, was really, we we're really excited just to, to find somebody else's Think of yourself in the desert going, oh my goodness, I'm not alone in here. There's someone out there. So we connected, yeah. we connected then and then reconnected in, in December, um, a few months later. And we realized that we were on the same journey. We wanted the same uh, outcomes. And we then got together and created African Family Firms, which is our nonprofit African Family Business Association. Congratulations. That's, I mean, an awesome journey for both of you. And I'm happy that you found each other. One of the things that I think has astounded me is, you know, when we talk family business and legacy and the parable that we all talk about, you know, the proverb of the you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And it doesn't matter what country you're from that that's you know it's stalls to stars to stalls it's you know uh, rice paddy to rice paddy in three generations whatever it is you know it's there because and it's I don't like to think about it in a negative term it, it's just entropy it's just it's physics it's just normal it's either you're either growing like the two of you have made the decision to grow and to learn and to add new tools to the tool belt so that you can continue you know, the legacy and continue the family business. So good on you, love it. Thank you for joining us. This is gonna be fun. Um, so we're, we're talking about navigating change within the family enterprise. And you know, based on both of your stories, it's a lot of this has got to have you know, come from just your experience through life. Um, you know, do you mind, you know, I, I think, and I wasn't pl planning on this, but I, I think talking about your story and the, the different times where there was disruption or, you know, there was a lack of continuity in what you were, what you were doing. Um, Nike, would you mind talking about that a little bit for you? And then mm -hmm. what were some of the tools that, and what were some of the books that you read that, that guided you to, you know, to, through those changes. Mm. Wow. That's a, that's a packed question. And I'm not really sure where to begin. There was lots of, <laughs> lots of changes that we, we navigated over the last 10 years um, from, I mean, challenging business environment that I kind of alluded to, which we unfortunately lost some businesses, um, some businesses we had to shut down because they were no longer viable. Um, out here, our governments are typically the largest um, clients. Um, so government is about 70% of our economy compared to private sector. 
And in construction space, they typically will dominate in terms of client base. And unfortunately, government are notorious for paying late. And we had a cash crisis in our business. And unfortunately, one of our businesses had to be shut down. And I think that was Resilience 101 for me, um, to be perfectly honest with you, um, it wasn't books that got me through that season. It was, it was really learning from my father and seeing how he had a learner's mindset and how seeing grit in action, to be perfectly honest with you, and seeing coming up with creative ways of keeping the enterprise going. Um, what new businesses can we start? to ensure that we have cash flow as a group to keep the business going and to ensure that we meet our obligations. And how do we handle creditors? Because obviously um, if our receivables become, um, you have to write them off. Um, we had creditors to manage and dealing with that whole legal process. So for me, I would say that was the most challenging disruptive um, season that I've navigated in the business, which is ironic more disruptive than COVID. <laughs> um, COVID was disruptive in itself, having to ensure that, you know, in an environment where we're a construction company, we, you know, we're, we're in the real sector, so to speak. There's nothing virtual about building homes and building roads and what have you. There's only so much we can ensure that we digitize and what have you. Um, and we had, about 2000 members of staff, most of them are um, low, lowly skilled staff like artisans and things. Um, getting them to adapt to working from home was a bit of a challenge, but that withstanding, um, focusing on preserving culture of the business was, was our priority. Um, as Pete Drucker says, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And how do we ensure that our touch points with our employees, not just with our customers, um, remain consistent? How do we ensure that, you know, when we're having Zoom calls with external facing parties, they feel the congruence that they felt when we would come into the office and things like that. So those were the two big disruptive eras that I've personally faced as an entrepreneur. Um, and it's just really, for me, it's just, starting with the end in mind of focusing on that end, which is that you will get through whatever season that is, um, not giving up, um, being curious and courageous to find solutions to whatever situation you find yourself in. Bravo. I love how you took your degree in accountancy and your experience there and brought that back to the family so many times when um, we're dealing with the with family business advisors, they many of them come at it from the, the standpoint of the family dynamic, the psychological aspects and the governance piece of that. And you have this really neat um, combination of where you understand the dynamic, that's really important, but because you've been part of the, the, the business, the cash flow, you know, is, and just understanding that and having gone through a crisis moment, you can relate to that piece because at the end of the day, you know, yes, dynamics aside, but 
without the cash flow, without the growing business, nothing changes. So I love that you bring that dynamic to the table there. See, see, when you were talking about, you know, your family and your father died, you know, that just rang, you know, how did you, what were some of the tools? What were some of the things that you relied on to get you through, you know, the unraveling of his estate, the communication with different people that, you know, different, you know, relatives that, you know, you had step siblings, right? And I don't know if there was other people involved in all that, but you're now you're navigating just the, it's not the cash flow side of things. It's the, the family dynamic side of things through all of that. How did you, how did you navigate that? Such an interesting question. So when you're going through it, I think it also goes on to how you react under pressure and um, how you deal with emotions and that, that sometimes can be a very personal thing. But I know from running businesses, from uh, being the first born in the family in terms of uh, from my mom and dad's side, um, that birth position can be very, very impactful on your whole life as it unfolds because you're always given responsibility from a young age. You're the one who's looking after the siblings. You're the one who's setting the good example. And so the, the day my dad died, I remember I was called the day before and they said that he, there was an accident that happened at the house and that they were taking him into the hospital. So my husband had traveled out of town and I'd said to them, I would come the following day when my husband got back um, because I couldn't travel on my own because I had my, my youngest daughter was just a couple of months old. Um, in the morning, the next day, it was eight o'clock in the morning, my, I had my mom over to look after the, the other kids so that and my husband had come back the night before and we were getting ready to prepare to go to see my dad and, and, and really see what's going on on the ground. That's when my cousin called me and um, uh, he, he, I was the first call he made um, because uh, traditionally in our, in our culture, you call the first child. If, so if it's a first male child, you call him. First female child, you call her. So they called me and they said to me, you know what? Um, you remember we, we told you your dad um, was in an accident and things went well, well, he's just passed. Oh. So um, automatically at that point in time, I became the adult in the situation. I became the person who had to break the news to everybody else. I became the person who needed to, to share the information with the critical family members. Uh, already the, the information was disseminating through other ways, but the official information had to come from me. And so um, I had to then prepare my family to travel because he was, um, where, he, where he passed was about 400 kilometers from where we were in the main, uh, we were in the, in the capital, he, he died in one of the provincial towns. So getting there, I, I had the responsibility of making sure that all the funeral arrangements had been made and uh, when we were burying him and, and all the, the nitty gritties of it. And then to make sure that um, my other siblings that went from my mom were informed and that they may, came to the funeral. And then also um, the, the other women the, the, the mothers were also informed, the ones that needed to be informed. 
And so automatically at the funeral, there was conflict because you had family members who, according to culture, were uh, standing in and saying, we, we are his relatives. And so we are traditionally allowed to make decisions. And in this case, I had also the legal standpoint where I am his legal child and I had um, authority to make those decisions um, until the court appointed somebody. And there was already conflict because there was minors involved. There was my three youngest siblings were minors, had to navigate that. So we, we had so many things going on at the same time. And for me, the only moment I, I got to even mourn my dad, I think this initially was when we went to the funeral parlor and they asked us to identify his body and confirm it was him. And until that moment, I was in process mode. I was processing everything, being the responsible firstborn and doing everything that needed to be done. And I think at that moment, it's when I realized I was just a little girl that lost her dad. And I had to take on the weight of the world, all the responsibility. He hadn't left the world, he hadn't left anything. And I had to start doing that for him and honor him. And I think that was the first moment it hit me. And then after, and then I think I gathered myself and then later on after we had to go through the court processes because there was a lot of conflict going on. Um, people trying to get uh, things from the estate and trying, there's just so much cultural and legal issues. And throughout this time, I was the only adult who could adult at that point in time. And so I think like I said, birth position helps because you're used to being the responsible one. Also um, being in business, um, knowing that there's different stakeholders to different conversations, being able to navigate those stakeholders, identifying the right stakeholders and um, diplomacy. Um, emotions do take hold of you, but not allowing them to overwhelm you because when you get emotional, you do not see right, you do not answer right. And uh, you could literally pour gas over an open flame and it could get worse than it looks. And <laughs> I had a lot of moments where I found I had to gather myself and, um, and think about the fact that I was trying as best as I can to preserve somebody's memory and no matter how many conflicts we have, it, it wouldn't be right to destroy an estate and to fight over things because we still have relationships that we still have to navigate for the rest of our lives. Phenomenal. Thank you for sharing that with us. Here, here's what's going through my head now is you, you talked about having to be the adult and I think it's very important, you know, I don't think we've ever talked about that on the show, is when we're dealing with family, a lot of times the emotion or the triggers that happened when we were children or when we were younger come up in place, especially around when we're navigating change, when there's, when there's things happening, those triggers happen. And we need to, one, I think probably be thought-filled about the fact that I may get triggered. 
I may have these things happening, but I still need to adult myself. But at the same time, you also need to be respectful to the child within, right? When you were, when you went to see your father, you needed to be respectful that there was that relationship, the father, daughter, the little girl and her dad, and you needed to embrace that at that moment. And so the duality of both of those, you know, positions, it's important. And just knowing that, you know, that these things are emotionally charged. Um, good, great stuff. Thank you. That was, I, I hope everybody understood how wonderful that was for us to experience because we all at one point or another have gone through things just like this. And, and we need to give ourselves that space to, you know, to be okay with that. It's the, uh, one of the books that's popping into my head and I can't remember the exact title, but it's um, difficult conversations. I can't remember. It's, you know, just to, to, you know, I, and I always like to, you know, anytime there's, there's books that you have read through the years or things that have helped you to think through those things, feel free to share them with us. But um, I have to remember the title of that book I'll, and I'll put it back out there. Nike, talk to us about, um, you know, the, the when we're just thinking through succession planning mm -hmm. and, the, and that change is going to be gigantic for people. There's, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was, which of you, you know, talked about it, but it's that there's, it needs to be a generational bridge that mm -hmm. connects the, the, during, you know, the succession plan. Do you want to talk about that for a bit? Mm, indeed. Um, a lot of the work that um, I do is really building bridges between generation one and generation two. And because um, out here in um, Nigeria and Africa at large, most of the family businesses are at first gen. Um, over 98% of them, unfortunately, will pack up once the founders pass away. And so um, I say that it's important for us to build that bridge between generation one and generation two, because often what we see is a distance, a disconnect and a divide between the two generations who often have different leadership styles, different views on life, different um, risk appetites with respect to the business and even investments, um, different communication styles. <laughs> Where do we stop? Different time orientation. And these many differences and this differences in perspectives can make us feel like we want completely different things and stop us from coming together to truly collaborate. And really the basic building blocks before we can even do anything is for the family to come together and connect and have conversations, conversations on the purpose of the family business, the vision, the values, um, the mission. And then we can then start to ideate on what kind of a strategy do we want um, and then think through in the business coming up with ensuring that we do have a succession plan by way of management, by way of estate planning and ownership, by way of like legal perspective and what have you. But I often say that the, the fundamental piece that a lot of families don't want to do and miss out on is that conversation. That's the basic, that's the absolute basic. Without that conversation, having your attorney come in won't solve it. Having a family constitution um, that's drawn up and signed, that's dead on your bookshelf. It really won't solve it because there's 
that it's really important that, you know, the heart and soul of the family is reflected at any given point in time. And the family has full clarity as to what's the compelling reason for them to stay in business together, or what's the compelling reason for them to stay investing together. Thank you so much. Um, I found the name of the book. It is, it is called Crucial Conversations and it's Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High is the name of the book um, that I've related to. It's also, you know, um, I've read um, you know, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead and I've done that with my team. And, you know, I think teaching family members, teaching employees, especially on the leadership team, how to have those crucial conversations, or as Brene Brown calls it, how do we rumble? Um, and, and how do we do that in a respectful manner? And again, go back to inside the family, you know, generation one to generation two, there will be triggers. There, you know, my, my father and I worked together, um, but we ran separate companies. And when he retired, I bought out a portion of his practice. I didn't buy the whole piece, whole, whole practice, but it was because we didn't see eye to eye. And so we just made that, con that, that, that decision that we would do things separately because our relationship was more important than us combining the business pieces to it. And, and I think that goes back to that shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves piece that there's so much pressure on it being a legacy that I think that just being a successful business, right, you know, is okay. And as long as you're having that conversation, I think that's what you were getting at is, you know, whether it's, whether you pass the legacy or don't pass the legacy, it's all about the conversation. Why are we doing what we're doing? So, Tsitsi, what would you like, what would you like to add to that? I think one of the other things that's really important is um, when we're having conversations to look at perspective. Mm. When, we, when we're speaking to each other, how we speak to each other and when we speak to each other is also equally important. There's sometimes where we want to have important discussions, but it's not the right time. And because it's necessary for us in that moment to get answers or in that moment to make a decision, we overlook the fact of what the other person is going through or the perspective of which they're seeing the conversation from. And that in itself is, is really important in any dialogue and in any conflict situation where it's, it's in, 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 in family especially because we assume because we come from the same household and we share the same commonalities in values or the same commonalities in, we, we sat at the same dinner table for so long that we know each other. We assume that we, we had the same experiences, but we've seen that in, in one family, I can, let me give a, a, a very out there uh, example, look at, um, the Bezos family. When he started Amazon, he was in his garage, hoping it'll work out. And probably let's say he had his first child then. 
his first child's experience of him is definitely not the same as a child if let's say he has another child now where he is borderlining trillionaire and the resources are different the his perspective of the world is different his perspective even on raising children is different and so when then we come to this discussion table and we want to then talk about succession or his legacy are the, all the children's perspective going to be the same is that conversation going to come from a space where everybody understands where the other person is coming from and sometimes just to think the fact that the other person might want what's best for me and they don't know how to articulate it because they probably don't understand where my viewpoint is coming from. So like you said, it's the difficult conversations that need to be had and um, trying to step into someone else's shoes, as we always say, is probably a cliche way of looking at it, but maybe not necessarily stepping into their shoes, but digging deeper and wanting to see what their perspective is and where they're standing at that point in time before we push through to the next stage of whatever it is that we are trying to achieve in a family business. No, yeah, I completely agree with you. And it reminds me of my favorite quote from Steve Covey. I'm sorry, Franklin Covey, seek first to understand, then to be understood, um, which is really, and it's hard, <laughs> it's really hard when you're in that situation and there's emotions brewing and we all want, we all have a, a righteous sense of what is just and we want to be served, you know, justly and ensure that some people get their fair share of reward or punishment, uh, whichever is appropriate in whichever situation we're talking about. But the truth of the matter is we have to learn to be patient and seek first to understand other people before then we are then understood. And it's horrible and hard because there are situations where you might be deeply, deeply hurt and have no outlet to air that with the person that you're angry with. Um, and you have to be empathetic towards their situation and understand them first before then you're understood. So it's a patience game, ultimately. It's difficult because, you know, I think the, the example that Tsitsi gave us really helped to, to, to visualize that, you know, when you take yourself out of the situation um, and thinking about Jeff Bezos having kids at different times, that really was, that was the first time I ever thought about that, that way. And that really made a huge difference. Um, I think that was a great example. And, and to your point, Nikkei, it is so difficult, you know, to seek first to understand. Um, I, I use the, I use the, the, uh, a coin as um, the way that I help people to think about that. And if you hold a coin between two people and ask them to describe what they see, one will say, well, it's, you know, a person's face. And the other one says it's, you know, a building. And at the same time, they're both 100% right. But they are, you know, they're not able to see the whole entire picture at the same time. And that's, you know, it, that becomes difficult when as soon as you could flip that coin to say, oh, you do see something different than I do and, and do seek to understand. I think it's really important 
that people find the time to do that. How would you help family members as you're talking to family firms and family enterprises? How are you helping them to build those skills? Because at the end of the day, this is no different than studying for your accountancy degree or weightlifting. It's practice. And so what are some of the ways that you teach people to practice? Indeed, no, it, it, it does take practice. And um, quite often I'm pulled in the room at the point of crisis where things are not working and it's like, I want to take my parents to court. I want to sue them. There's this huge conflict going on. And so um, firstly, I try to douse that tension. Um, that might not be the best route to take for both the business and the family relationship. You might feel a very strong need to be for righteousness, right? Um, as you perceive it, but it's not going to be fruitful. And then it's really talking through what are the specific situations that has led you to this point? And can you, I always try to get my clients to develop an empathy map for whom, the counterparty, even if there's no conflict, say for instance, your classic next gen, um, dad's not giving me sufficient responsibility and he won't pull back from this um, business. He's not retiring at the time he said he would retire. Okay, can we develop an empathy map to understand what's going on with dad? Um, could it be that he's dealing with a lot of fear, um, a lot of loss? So he's anticipating firstly his mortality, which is scaring him. Um, and as he's um, nearing that final day, the dreams and ambitions he had for himself, perhaps he feels like he's not nearing them and actualizing them. Um, he might also have a, a perceived loss of identity, a loss of status, a loss of, there's so much loss involved in it. So if he's dealing with anxiety and fear, would being critical and nagging help that situation? Could there be another way we could firstly reframe his exit so not kicking dad out of the business but making him feel like he's being promoted to make a greater impact on the business and on civic society at large um so there's a reframing element to that and then also there's a language element to that so what are the key hot points for for dad what are his key issues um obviously observable right there's some some unspoken issues that he won't verbalize and then any idea that you're bringing to him how can you articulate it in a way that he will in the language that he will understand I remember when my husband and I before we got married we had premarital counseling um, at church and they made us read Stephen Chapman is it Gary Chapman's book the love languages five, yep, five languages of love five languages of love yep. and the whole idea is that we each communicate in distinct languages and we we express and receive love in specific languages and the issue is that quite often with couples you will try to communicate in the language that you want to receive and it's like you're speaking a foreign language to your spouse and it's similar in this situation so you're speaking and articulating your idea in the way that you would want to receive but is that the language in which that your father would understand and so really it's Empathy is at the heart of a lot of the work that I do. Love it. You know, when you said that, what 
you know, thinking about practicing this, I think sometimes people may get hung up on doing it for family members. So you talked about creating an empathy map. Well, we're all, as a business owner, one of the ways you can practice that and tell me if you, you know, this would make sense is if I did that with my customer and talked about how do I do an empathy map? What, you know, I can, I can Google empathy map. I can see what that looks like. And if I do that with my customer first, then maybe I can learn how to do that with my family members second. It might be easier that way. Even your employees. Employees, absolutely. Their perspectives are completely different. Um, their priorities are not necessarily the same as yours, right? Um, so I've found it to be a really useful life skill, um, developing an empathy map. What's someone thinking? What are they feeling? Um, what, what are they sensing? What do they want? What are they fearing? Just going deep and trying to understand their psyche. And when I stew in that for a few days, I start to actually feel deep, genuine empathy for them. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, if I articulated this in this way, actually, that's quite abrasive. That's almost like rubbing salt into the wound. Um, that sounds quite critical. Um, that won't be very well received. So can I change my style of delivery? Can I repackage and essentially speak in their love language as we were kind of speaking about earlier. So I found it to be a really useful life skill, not just about helping families and business. Right. Uh, Titi, if you have anything that you want to add in there, that'd be great. But then I would love to kind of bring us back to governance and um, talking about, you know, what are what are some of the, the aspects of those building the blueprints inside of governance and what are some of the good exercises to help us down that road and you know maybe it's history or shared history and values and those connection points um i think you've just spoken to a lot of the um, tools that i use when working with families when you have different people in the room, no matter how common they have um, aspects of their lives and experiences, it's really important to highlight what brings us together. What do we share? What is our shared history? Because that is where we're coming from. What is it? How do we reflect on that history? How do we see that history? What are the, the experiences we've had together? And um, what of those experiences was important to us? And then looking at, I think for me, I break it into three steps. Your past, your present, your future. Your shared history is your past. Your shared values are your present because you're looking at where you're coming from and you're pulling together all the important moments, the, the, the moments that made everyone say, this was painful or this was the happiest moment or this was a, a triumphant moment for us. And then creating those values, what are those value systems that we have right now in this moment in time where we say, as a collective, this is what we believe in as this is who define, what defines us. Then when you looked at your shared vision, you're now looking at the shared future. You're projecting into a future that you know very little about, but you have an idea of what you would want it to look like. And you start 
assigning yourselves and committing yourselves to this because it's something that you've shared, something you've sat down and agreed that knowing where we're coming from, understanding where we are, and then projecting into where we want to be, this is the blueprint of the future that we want to see. And then going into that, we start looking at another three part, which is people, processes, and product. Your product is definitely the future, is the wealth that you want to build, is the future you want to see for your family, the collectivity, the, um, the freedom to, to choose, the freedom to, to be a family, and recognizing what that product looks like and projecting it in that shared vision. The process is now identifying as a family who is going to play the roles that are pivotal to making this future possible? We, who are the key human resources within the family, within the business that need to work together to create a process that then uses tools that starts building out? And um, as I keep on saying today, there is something I, I saw on LinkedIn, which was so profound to me, um, where it said, we always talk about Rome being not being built in a day as a cliche, but we forget to mention that Rome was not built by a single person. It took teams to build Rome. And so as a family, we must know that that product or that shared vision we have needs the team. It needs the people, the humans, the, the people that create the family, that joint vision, that joint shared history, that joint shared value system has to then be embedded in the people to be able to go through the process to create the product. And so you're looking at it from three point angles on each side, past, present, future. Shared history is your past, present is your shared values, future, your shared vision. And then you're looking at your people, the human resources you have, the family members that are ready to, to do the work that's necessary, the team you have ready to build, the processes that they have to go through to build, and the final product. What is it that we want to see at the end? What is, uh, as a family, what do we say is the build out? And we must know that with each generation, the blueprint might be changed you might have something that may impact or your family might grow a little bit bigger and you need to add a few rooms to that blueprint. And you might want to knock out the, the ensuite and add another extension walk-in closet or something. But that's a decision that the family has to make together and it has to be a shared experience. And so within itself, family governance is, it's, it looks like a natural process if you look at it from a, a non-business typical situation. It's a national process where you're just saying to people as a group, what do we want to achieve? Because we were brought together by nature or nurture and we're here now. What do we want to say as a group that we have collectively achieved? And uh, we look at that when we see, look at the great families, the monarchies, the, um, the business families, they've achieved something. They've, they've added to the value of the human race. They've added to the value of the communities and their legacy is more than just the wealth that they've left their families. 
it's the fact that they were able to create a vision that we all were able to see become a product and we were able to benefit from that product in some way. And ultimately that is the human cause. That is what we really want to do. I thank you, that, that was perfect. I, I love the way you phrased that and put that together. I, when I talk with families, I break it down slightly different, but it's the, but the saying exactly the same thing. It's, it's purpose first. Why do we exist as a family? What is it important? What are we trying to do? And that's in order to get there, it's, you know, that, that, that purpose statement, it's the, the why, you know, as Simon Sinek says, right? It begins with why. It's the essential first step in, in making these things happen, as they say at the Y Institute. Um, and then from there, it's, I skipped to talking about the, what would it look like? And I want each family member to write separately. And, and we go through exercises and ask questions and get everybody to just say, for you, and go back to perspective, for you, what does this look like if we were to achieve this purpose or if we were to really go after it hard and, and, and work towards it? At that point, the, you know, a lot of times what I have seen is there's a, there is a disruption if I start with the purpose without talking about the vision for the future, because I think it's natural for human beings to talk about the obstacles that are in the way. But when the purpose is big enough, when, you know, I've, I've heard it said when the facts, when the dream's big enough, the facts don't count. And so when the purpose is big enough, and then you can outline it and everybody can share in that and then give the space for the obstacles and everybody the same thing. Put your obstacles down. What do you think could stop us from making these things happen, right? And then you can create the strategies like it may be reading the five love languages might be one of the pieces in there. It might be making sure that we understand empathy and putting those pieces together. But that creates, if I have my vision, right? Or my purpose, and I have the vision for the future. I understand the obstacles. When you put all of that together, and then you have strategies to work, you know, to, to work against the obstacles or to overcome the obstacles, that becomes your blueprint, right? And now you have something that everybody can agree to. Love it, love it. Um, there was a couple other things that were, you know, that, you, that were said that I latched on to. I'm thinking about families that do end up in turmoil, that do end up in that, you know, the legal positions. He said, she said, and now we're, you know, we're, we're going to lawyer up. If you were talking to a family that was in the, the midst of lawyering up, so to speak, what are some of the things that, you know, you, you would share and I, you know, to say, you know, I, I think you've already said it in here, but I just, if you've got, you know, words of wisdom for people in that position, um, I, I, is there anything else that you would add to it? I think we already said it. Now that I, as I'm, as I'm speaking through this, I think we've already said it's, you know, really working on an empathy map. It's, it, it's sitting down and, and knowing that the person that's gonna walk away with the most from this is probably the attorneys or the legal system. Um, but 
uh, this has been a fabulous, fabulous conversation. Why don't we, why don't I ask each of you, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would have liked to have talked about? We've got a few minutes. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add that we, that I haven't, you know, we haven't teased out at this point? Um, I would just add that in this hour that we're in, just globally with the pandemic and everything, um, it's been extremely disruptive. But I really believe that moments of disruption give us an opportunity to reimagine, reinvent ourselves and redefine ourselves, both as individuals, families and businesses. And um, as you kind of alluded to, not during moments of difficulty to to lean in and not give up and to dare to dream in spite of all that might have been lost, whether it's business-wise or personally, um, and come together as a family, just be connected and have those conversations and collectively dream for the future. Fitzy? Um, I think my words of wisdom to families right now is um, to be unafraid the future will always happen. Whether we're in it or not, the future will always happen. So being unafraid means that we can go out there and project our best visions, our best dreams, and allow them to happen. And when we feel that we are way out of our depths, to know that there was a time where they thought the earth was flat and not round, and when they kept on going, they realized that it was actually round and they'd come back the other end. Of. So being unafraid allows us to, to carry on when times are difficult, to carry on to have difficult conversations and um, to see conflict, not always as a bad thing, but as a space of growth. And to look at things, I know it's difficult to always see things positively, but then not to see it as a positive or a negative, but to just embrace it as an experience. Because we always go through experiences. We will have bad days, we will have good days. And I think as we have learned from, from COVID itself, that the world is just a village and our families are a part of this village. We're all in the same boat. So we should look into a future knowing that we are responsible for how that future pans out and we can't sit outside the ring while the match is going on. Bravo. Uh, ladies, I can't thank you enough. This has been um, just a fabulous episode and we really, uh, I, I think people should go back and re-listen to this more than once. Um, it, it was that good with the, the pieces that you shared. And we haven't talked about a lot of these things before. So bravo to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining us today. If people wanted to connect with you, how do they do that? Thank you so much. Firstly, Michael. Um, website, nikeanani.com and africanfamilyfirms.org. Um, and for me, it's nakalegacy.com. So naka spelled N-H-A-K-A, then legacy, one word, dot com. And um, we are also on social media. So you can find us under Nike Anani or Tsitsim Tendi on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. But majority of the time you find us on LinkedIn or on Twitter. 
and we are very responsive when you reach out to us, even through the African Family Firms website. Wonderful. And, you know, what just struck me is the work that you're doing really has giant ripple effects because when you can help a, a business successfully go from Gen 1 to Gen 2 or Gen 2 to Gen 3, and you can keep that legacy in place. It's all of those jobs and it's all of that, you know, all of that work that's, you know, vendors that are being served. And it, it really does help to change the economic outlook and things that we do. You said it earlier and it just clicked for me, you know, in Nigeria, 70% of GDP is coming from government, where in the U.S., 70% of GDP is coming from consumer spending. And so, you know, it's those jobs, it's those, that economic engine of the family businesses, the more that we can help them, the more you can serve them and, and, and keep those legacies moving, it does make a difference. So really, really, you know, hats off to both of you and thank you for the work that you're doing out there. Keep it up. Um, my name is Michael Columbus and this has been the Family Biz Show. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. You can reach out to us at familywealthandlegacy.com. But more importantly, find the Family Biz Show, share it with other people. There's been so much impactful, positive learning, you know, pieces inside of here that uh, uh, we know that the family business is the economic en engine of all of our communities. So let's uh, keep these messages and this learning going forward. Thank you all for joining us. Have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.